All right, you beautiful nerds, this is it. You have until Friday, October 28th to become a supporter of 99% Invisible and Radiotopia and keep this program and network strong for a long time to come. I think in the past year, we've done the best work we've ever done, and that kind of growth is possible because you support us. If 99PI is at all valuable to you, kick in whatever amount makes sense to you. If we get a total of 5,000 new donations during this drive, that includes new backers plus any additional gifts from our current members, FreshBooks will donate $40,000 to Radiotopia. So you donating $25 will be like giving us $40,025. As I'm recording this, we need about 1,600 people to make our goal. That's a lot, but we could do it today if you act now. If you'd like a brand new Radiotopia Challenge coin, we have that. If you want a slick Radiotopia hoodie, we got that too. And if you'd like another year of 99% Invisible, we can arrange that, but we need your help to do it. Go to radiotopia.fm to donate right now. There's no time to waste. Thanks. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. The moment is at hand. The countdown reaches zero. In 1957, a few months after the Soviet satellite Sputnik became the first human object in space, the United States launched Explorer 1. Explorer is in orbit, broadcasting to the world its coded scientific data. Cosmic ray intensity, meteor impact, solar radiation. These are the dry facts that will help carry man ever farther into the age of space. And with that, the space race was underway, and the two world powers began launching more and more satellites every year. A lot of these early missions failed before they ever made it into orbit. That's producer Emmett Fitzgerald. But there were successes, and little by little, space started to fill up with human-made objects. By the summer of 1961, there were 115 satellites circling the Earth. And it was during that summer that the U.S. launched an unmanned rocket carrying the Transit 4A satellite. And about two hours after launch, the rocket blew up. It was the first known object to unintentionally explode in space. And it created about 300 fragments of totally useless space junk. Some of these pieces got pulled into the atmosphere and burned up. But around 200 are still up there today. At the time, most people weren't all that concerned about a few bits of metal floating around in the vastness of space. I think the general feeling was that space was big and that we could put objects, satellites up into space without really having any consequences to that. This is Hugh Lewis, a space junk expert at the University of Southampton. Back in the early days of the space age, it wasn't seen as a problem. While the universe may be infinite, orbital space, the region where objects revolve around the Earth, is finite. And the amount that we use regularly is even more limited. Most satellites end up in a few particular orbits, almost like freeways. And the traffic on those freeways is actually quite a lot, and that's where the problem starts to emerge. As the traffic increases, so does the chance of collision. One of the regions of space that got busy pretty quickly is the area called low Earth orbit. That's a region of space that extends up to an altitude of about 2,000 kilometers. That's really heavily congested. And when a satellite stops working in low Earth orbit, it can stay in that region for hundreds of years. By the mid-1960s, there were already lots of old and defunct satellites floating around up there. And NASA began to look into this. 
they started to really think about the potential issues that space debris, orbital debris might pose in the future. Um, and that was an activity that was really led by Don Kessler, who was at NASA at the time. My name is Don Kessler. I started the orbital debris program at NASA. Kessler is retired now, but when he got started at NASA, he was studying meteoroids. And specifically what happens when two meteoroids collide and break apart into smaller pieces. Eventually, Don Kessler started doing similar research on space junk, or as NASA calls it, orbital debris. Kessler was studying what happens when one piece collides with another. And this is what he found. Every time you have a breakup, you've increased the probability of another collision, and that eventually just causes the whole population to continue to increase exponentially with time. This idea that space junk multiplies as more and more objects collide and break apart came to be known as the Kessler syndrome. And Kessler predicted that the growth in space junk would eventually snowball. And that cascading phenomena after oh, 100 years gets to be well out of control. There's not much you can do about it. And you've created an environment that becomes uh, very hazardous to spacecraft. If the growth in space junk went totally unchecked, Kessler predicted that space could become so filled with debris that it would be difficult to fly a spacecraft without getting hit. Kessler's findings were discussed throughout the space community. And in 1979, NASA started its Orbital Debris Program to study and monitor space junk. And they appointed him to lead it. Around that same time, people began to use space more and more. Countries all around the world were launching weather satellites, military satellites, communications satellites, and amateur radio satellites. And because space isn't owned by any one government in particular, low Earth orbit began to experience a tragedy of the commons. Lots of different countries were leaving trash everywhere, but no one was tidying up. The amount of junk in space continued to grow throughout the 20th century. But it wasn't until 2009, long after Donald Kessler had retired, that people really started to take the issue seriously. Two communication satellites have collided in space around 800 kilometers above Siberia. It's the first crash On February 10th, 2009, the Iridium-33, an active U.S. communication satellite, struck a defunct Russian satellite called the Cosmos 2251. It was the first collision between two fully intact satellites, and it created thousands of pieces of debris. Donald Kessler wasn't surprised. Forty years prior, he had predicted that the first major collision between whole satellites of this size would happen around the new millennium. For most people, the collision made the problem of space junk feel much more urgent. So I think that Iridium Cosmos collision really was a wake-up call. And certainly it sparked a new wave of research and funding even for, for space debris. That's Hugh Lewis again. Lewis says that it's hard to estimate the total amount of space debris out there. But scientists can track anything larger than 10 centimeters in diameter. You're talking about maybe a population of objects that are softball size or bigger. It's about 30,000 objects in orbit at the moment. Everything from small fragments to old rocket bodies to satellites the size of a bus. And that's just the stuff that's large enough to track. There are potentially millions of millimeter-sized bits of debris. Shards of glass, screws, flecks of paint. And even that tiny stuff can cause real problems when it's whipping around the Earth at up to 17,000 miles per hour. Yeah, the object does not need to be big in order to, to carry a lot of energy and, and to cause a substantial amount of damage if, if it were to hit anything. 
the most vulnerable thing in orbital space is the International Space Station. Which routinely has to make maneuvers to avoid collisions with larger pieces of space debris. The International Space Station is also equipped with expensive heavy-duty shielding to protect it from smaller bits of space junk. Astronaut Tim Peake recently took a picture of a sizable divot in one of the space station windows where a piece of debris penetrated several centimeters into the glass. So that's a constant reminder for the astronauts on the space station. Every time they look out of that window, that's a recognition of the, the threat that's out there. But it's not just a threat to astronauts. So much of our technology here on Earth is dependent on vulnerable satellites. You know, pretty much uh, everyone in the UK, you know, in the US, probably has a smartphone with um, a GPS capability on it. That's a service that's provided by spacecraft. And when you think about navigation signals that are used for, you know, um, aircraft that are flying in the sky, it's it's everywhere in our daily lives and not just, you know, for convenience, it's for our safety. International telephone communication, weather forecasting, keeping track of time in different parts of the world. All of this is dependent on satellites. Global banking systems fall down if, if we lost the signals we get from space. These risks are causing scientists around the world to look into how they can clean up the space environment. Now, when someone wants to put a new satellite into space, there are UN guidelines that say you have to come up with a plan to dispose of that satellite within 25 years. There are a couple issues with these guidelines, though. One, they're not being followed by everyone. And two, even if they were more closely adhered to, it might not be enough to make space safe. Because there's already so much stuff up there. And as Donald Kessler discovered, space junk multiplies. Even if we stop putting any more stuff up there, the number of pieces of junk will continue to grow. And then we start to think about, okay, how do we address the problem perhaps a bit more proactively? How do we deal with the stuff that's already up there? All around the world, engineers are dreaming up ways to remove debris from space. In many cases, by sending it down into Earth's atmosphere to burn up. You throw a net over the object. Harpoons have been talked about. There are proposals for space junk slingshots and solar sails that could carry a piece of junk out of a dangerous orbit. Robotic arms, attaching a really long tether to the object to try and bring it down, attaching a solid rocket motor. No matter how you do it, removing an object from space will be expensive and politically complicated. But right now, the European Space Agency is planning a mission to remove one of its derelict satellites, and they're considering these kinds of ideas. That mission is scheduled to take place in 2023. So we are on the cusp of this type of activity. But even if we found the perfect technology to safely destroy all of the space junk in Earth orbit, not everyone is on board. I completely agree that this is a problem we need to do something about. But I think the way that it's framed leaves out a really vital factor, and that factor is human cultural heritage. That's Alice Gorman. I'm also known as Dr Space Junk. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at Flinders University, and I do research on space archaeology, particularly looking at space junk in low Earth orbit. For much of her career, Alice Gorman, or Dr Space Junk, researched Aboriginal culture in Australia. I'd been a professional archaeologist for many years and I was um, working on a consulting job in Queensland and looked up at the sky and realised that some of those 
points of light were not stars or planets, they were actually human manufactured spacecraft and some of those bits of stuff were space junk. And that's kind of what archaeologists do. We, we're focused on the stuff that people discard, the stuff they throw away, the, the garbage of humanity. So while the rest of her colleagues continued digging in the dirt, Gorman turned her attention skyward and began to study the archaeology of space. Because amidst the scraps of floating debris are some really remarkable artifacts. A lot of those things we currently call space junk are actually quite extraordinary objects that have so much to tell us about the early history of the space age. I've got a lot of favourites in low Earth orbit. Vanguard 1 is definitely one of them. Launched by the United States in 1958, Vanguard 1 is currently the oldest intact object in space. This little um, grapefruit-sized aluminium sphere with four antennas sticking out on the sides. It's floating around up there, along with the most recent satellites, along with, you know, technology that's so incredibly different. And there are objects in orbit that look nothing like a traditional satellite, like the Westford Needles which were these small copper antennas that were sent into space in the 1960s. They were really tiny, so they were only like um, a centimetre big. And the idea was they would form a reflective halo around the Earth that radio signals could be bounced from. Using radio waves for global communication never really took off. But some of the needles are still up there, bunched together in little clumps of copper. So I find them really fascinating, and there's probably a lot more of those kinds of stories and objects out there that that tell a story of technology that could have gone in one direction, but it veered off in another one instead. But Gorman's all-time favorite piece of space junk might be the TRAC satellite, which the U.S. Navy launched from Cape Canaveral in 1961. And it was the first satellite to have a poem in it. Written by a professor of Italian literature at Yale named Thomas Bergen. And one stanza of the poem is inscribed on one of the instrument panels inside the satellite. So it was kind of already conceived as a cultural object. And that cultural object is still up there, orbiting the Earth about a thousand kilometers up. The poem reads, Fear not, immortals. We forgive your faults. And as we come to claim our promised place, aim only to repay the good you gave and warm with human love the chill of space. All of these objects might seem far away and inaccessible, but the day will likely come when we can go and visit them. You can already get to the International Space Station for a cool $20 million, and Gorman says that one day we will be able to fly coach into space. It's quite likely that, you know, when it's accessible and affordable thing to do, people will go into space and maybe stay at some fancy orbital hotel. And the two things we know from what's happened already that they will want to do is take a lot of photographs and have sex. But after a while, that stuff's going to become old hat too. And what happens when zero-G sex gets boring? Historical space tours. That's what. You might have different kinds of tours. You might say, let's do the amateur satellite tour. Or you might say, let's do the Cold War satellites. Or you might say, um, let's go and see all of the satellites that come from, you know, my nation's space agency. So, yeah, I totally think this stuff is going to happen. There's, it's going to be one of the things people do once we actually have a space tourism industry that people can afford. But the irony is, in order to have viable space tourism, we need a safe orbital environment. 
And so if we don't find an effective way to clean up some of the junk in space, we might never be able to go and see the good stuff. And it's kind of frightening. It, 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 in the most extreme version of this, uh, having, you know, ventured out to the moon and with spacecraft, you know, the voyages beyond the solar system, we would actually be shut back on Earth. So Gorman is all for cleaning up space. She just wants us to think carefully before we destroy something that we might want back. Because she can imagine the archaeologists and historians of the future trying to wrap their heads around humanity's first trips into space. There'll be so many mysteries, so many things that don't make sense, so many stories that you have a little bit here and a little bit there, and you're trying to to fill in the gaps. And those future archaeologists will thank us for leaving some space junk right where it is. Invisible was produced this week by Emmett Fitzgerald with Sharif Youssef, Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, Kurt Kolstad, Avery Truffleman, Delaney Hall, Taryn Mazza, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks to OK Akumi of Hell Audio for some of the music that we used this week. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. We are in the final days of the Radiotopia fundraising drive. If 5,000 of you donate at Radiotopia.fm, FreshBooks, the design-minded geniuses who make smart cloud accounting software for non-accountants, will give Radiotopia $40,000. You could be a part of making that happen. You could accomplish something great today by going to Radiotopia.fm. It all ends Friday, so act now. So here are some ads. Now you might be asking yourself, why are 99PI's ads always at the end of the show when all other big podcasts have theirs in the middle? Well, first of all, I think the ads at the end perform better for the advertiser because the people who stay are the people who buy things. And it's an aesthetic choice that I can make because I have the financial security of direct support from listeners like you. If you like it when independent producers have the freedom to make choices based on aesthetics rather than just financial concerns, give whatever you can at Radiotopia.fm. 99% Invisible is supported by Article, makers of mid-century modern and Scandinavian furniture. Article furniture is both beautiful and affordable and is shipped direct to you, eliminating the need for a middleman. Article furniture ships for a flat $49 and offers a 30-day, no-questions-asked return guarantee. I ordered the Walnut Seno sideboard for us to put our awards on in the office. It was tough to choose and it was very tough to get something for the office instead of just keeping something for myself in my house. Visit their website at article.com slash 99pi to get $50 off your first order. Special thanks to Filmstruck for sponsoring today's episode. Filmstruck is a new on-demand streaming service crafted for film lovers by film lovers that gives you instant access to critically acclaimed films, including the world-renowned Criterion Collection. Among special content like commentary tracks and bonus features, Filmstruck also provides an eclectic mix of movie titles updated on a weekly basis. Subscribers can explore hundreds of films and curated themes while discovering hard-to-find gems and critically acclaimed films. Visit Filmstruck.com today to learn more. And finally, from the beginning, this show and Radiotopia from PRX got off the ground because of the generosity of three benevolent actors that made us what we are today. They are the coin-carrying listeners who donate to us, the Knight Foundation, and MailChimp. 12 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their businesses every day. MailChimp helped us grow by giving us a place to tell more stories. 
This week I have a really cool article about weird rotary style prisons. You have to see them to believe them. Get a link to that story in the 99PI MailChimp newsletter, which you can subscribe to on 99pi.org. But to find out how to send better email and tell your story, go to MailChimp.com. Okay, the deadline is just a couple of days away. Maybe it's just a few hours away, depending on when you listen to this. Make this day the day you support the stories you love. I guarantee it'll feel good. Go to Radiotopia.fm. Radiotopia from PR.